You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Remind us as you're turning there that this is no formality. These are the very words of God and they are for us this morning. I believe they are especially for us right now. Matthew chapter 9 beginning in verse 35 through chapter 10 verse 4. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Beloved, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, friends, we are continuing in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come to a significant transition in Matthew's gospel. It's a significant transition. Here's here's what I mean. There are five major teaching sections in Matthew's gospel. Matthew has patterned that after the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so Matthew has patterned now his gospel to house five major teachings from Jesus Christ. And here in our text, at the end of chapter 9 and through chapter 10, is the second of the five major teaching sections in Matthew's gospel. And in this section that we're beginning this morning, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's forming them. He's preparing them to be an extension of his own ministry. In other words, in this section, we find Jesus beginning to prepare his disciples to be ambassadors of his kingdom agenda, to become ambassadors for him. As we've read Matthew now for however long we've been in this text, it is unmistakably clear that Matthew is presenting Jesus as a king. We see that in the birth narrative and we see that throughout the gospel of Matthew, that Matthew is presenting Jesus as a king who is inaugurating his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And what we learn from history, isn't it true that every king has a kingdom initiative? Every king has a mission charge, some agenda that he would like to see in his kingdom transpire. And here in this section before us, Jesus is going to shed light on his own kingdom agenda. 
We don't get all of the details fleshed out in this section, but we do get to see what is operating at the heart of Jesus. Why is he doing what he is doing? Both what is his purpose and what is motivating him? It's been often said what what compels the king compels the kingdom. So the question is, what is compelling this king? What's behind his kingdom agenda? So we see that in this section. And in this section, we see Jesus, as I said, beginning to fill the hearts of his disciples, his ambassadors, with the same kingdom ambitions as his. He wants them to be an extension of his mission in ministry. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that Jesus would fill our hearts. If you are a Christian here in Orange County, you particularly call this church your home, my prayer is that Christ Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, would fill our hearts with this same kingdom agenda and that we couldn't just shake it after Sunday passes. That the troubles from Tuesday and Wednesday, though they'll be there, won't shake this burden that Jesus gives us here in Matthew chapter 9. Three main movements in our text this morning. If you're a note taker, we see the compassion of Christ. Then we see the charge from Christ. And then we see at the end the chosen by Christ. The compassion of Christ, the charge from Christ, and finally the chosen by Christ. First, the compassion of Christ. Look at verses 35 and 36 again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew records that Jesus is visiting now every town, every village, every city, and he's proclaiming, he's heralding the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease. He's displaying his authority as a king. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That is, he he is proclaiming the good news of the king's arrival, the king's arrival and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And as we've already seen, Jesus begin to claim and then now display his authority. We've seen him display his authority over creation as he hushes storms with his mouth. We've seen him display his authority over the demonic realm as he casts out demons and demons are fearful of Jesus, not the other way around. We've already seen Jesus begin to display this kind of authority, but perhaps the greatest claim on authority was the claim that Jesus gave in our last chapter, and that was the authority to forgive sins. This is what made his critics absolutely go nuts, crazy. How dare you? What gives you the right? We're we're, we're, tentative about your authority over creation in the demonic realm, but to forgive sins, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? However, this authority, this claim to forgive sins is central to what makes Jesus' arrival good news. 
Yes, it is good news that he has authority over the sick. It is good news that he heals those afflicted by physical ailment. That is good news. But that's not the greatest news. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not just healed bodies and filled bellies, but it's forgiven sins in eternity with God the Father. And so this is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus goes and is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so this itinerant preacher named Jesus Christ is going about preaching. That is what he is doing. Now listen, in verse 36, this is vitally important. In verse 36, Matthew now sheds light on why he is doing it. What is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing everybody that he can. Why is he doing it? What is compelling him? What is that internal stuff inside of Jesus? Look at verse 36 again. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Take that last phrase for just a moment. Like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew describing how Jesus is feeling, what's compelling him in his earthly ministry. Matthew pulls again from this Old Testament metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep. Matthew drawing this out once again, his first century Jewish audience to, to listen, to lean in. Oh, he's talking about shepherd and, and sheep. This is a common metaphor. It's a metaphor for God as shepherd. It was this idea that because the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, they had abandoned their post. They, they, they sought after their own ambitions the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, they were filling their own bellies. They weren't serving God's people. And as a result, they left the flock of God unattended to and therefore vulnerable to attack. And if you read the Old Testament over and over again, God is saying to the shepherds of Israel, you have abandoned my flock. You have fed your own bellies. You loved the light, you loved the power, you loved the authority, and you didn't love my people. Those are my sheep. And so often you would read through the Old Testament, God would say, I am going to be my people's shepherd. I am going to draw near to them. I am going to lead them to green pastures and still waters. You have abandoned your post. Here's one of those texts. This is Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. Hear Jesus in this. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep, God says, my sheep 
were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek after them. What a rebuke to leadership. And so Matthew takes this Old Testament rebuke from the Lord to the leaders in Ezekiel's day and he inserts it right into the middle of Jesus' ministry. So as to say, the Lord is looking again. He's looking again upon the leaders of Israel. He's looking again upon you scribes and Pharisees. He's looking again upon you Sanhedrin. And he is seeing the house of Israel again, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That phrase, harassed and helpless, it means that they are are torn and thrown down. The wolves have had their way. They're torn apart and they are thrown down. They're ravaged because they have no true leader. And so when Jesus looks at the crowd, listen, he looks at the crowd and he's not filled with scorn. He's not filled with judgment. He's not filled with indifference. Matthew says he's filled with compassion. Compassion is a really weird word in the Greek. And I'm going to try to pronounce it to you because it even sounds weird. Here it comes. Splunk nizomai. God bless you. Bring that up in a Tuesday meeting over lunch. Splunk nizomai. It's a weird word. It sounds weird and it, it has a very weird and weirdly specific meaning, this word compassion in the Greek. One lexicon defines it this way. Quote, the term Compassion in the Greek literally refers to the inner parts or the bowels of a person or an animal. It gets even more specific. It's about, it it means the kidneys or the place of the kidneys. When it's used in its metaphorical sense, like we have in Matthew chapter 9, when it's used in its metaphorical sense, compassion has this idea, it represents the ideas of deep feelings of empathy. Deep feelings of empathy and compassion. So listen, when Matthew records that Jesus had compassion on the crowd, he is saying that his empathy for them was so great that the inner parts of his body felt a deep resonance with their affliction. In other words, Jesus was so proximate to their suffering, was so near to their affliction, that he began to feel in his body their pain. That's what it means by compassion. It's not scrolling through Facebook and going, oh, that's really sad. I hope people go to GoFundMe and support that family. It's not mere sympathy. He is moved by his proximity because he is near He is moved with empathy. It was as if he felt their harassment. As I said, it's it's been said, whatever controls the king controls the kingdom. 
If the king is controlled or the leader of a people is controlled by power, the subjects will want the same. Leadership matters. If the leader, the king, the president, whatever is controlled by ego, the kingdom will reflect that. Make no mistake about it. But what happens when compassion controls the king? What happens when that's the stuff that is driving his kingdom initiative? Compassion. Deep feelings of empathy for someone else's affliction. What happens to a kingdom like that? If you pull back the layers, beloved, you pull back all the layers of Jesus and you try to discover what is compelling his mission on earth. What's compelling him? What do you find? Matthew says you find a deep compassion for the lost. It is the compassion of Christ that fuels his ministry. And it is the compassion of Christ that now leads to his charge, to his church, us. So this is our point two, a charge from Christ, the compassion of Christ, and now the charge from Christ. Look at verse 37 and following. Then he said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, verses 37 and 38 is the beginning of a missional strategy from Jesus. And first, he identifies the challenge. So this is the missional strategy. Every strategy first begins with the challenge. Here's the problem. Here's the obstacle that we need to face. And Jesus says, here's the challenge. The harvest is bursting. It's bursting. That's the good news. The bad news is there are far too few laborers to gather the harvest. The fruit is going to die on the vine before we can have enough people to go and harvest the crop. That's, that's the challenge. The harvest is white. It's ready. But the laborers are few. In other words, the world is vast. And the number of people to reach with the gospel is enormous. It's insurmountable. And those proclaiming the gospel are so few. Okay. There's the challenge. So what's the plan? What's, what's the strategic missional plan, Jesus? What's the recruitment strategy? How are we going to scale this enterprise? How are we going to blow this up, Jesus? What's the strategy? Pray. Verse 38. Here's the, here's the problem. We have so many people and f- so few proclaimers What do we do? Verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Surely, Jesus, surely there is something more practical, more hands-on that we can be engaging in. 
You said yourself that the, the, the harvest is plentiful. Surely there's something more practical that we could do other than pray. Maybe fold some bulletins or start with some flyers. I mean, that's just sort of an entry point into a missional strategy. Well, maybe the flyers will come. But according to Jesus, the very first thing the church is to engage in as it relates to Christian mission is prayer. And not just ordinary prayer, earnest prayer. Not casual prayer before a meal, but earnest prayer. Driven by what? A compassion for the lost. Maybe one point of application. How do I enrich my prayer? How do I turn from casual, ordinary prayer to earnest prayer? Proximate yourself around hurting people who don't know Jesus. And if you're a Christian, I think the only result is prayer, earnest prayer. Why prayer, though? Why, why, not, why not a recruitment strategy, right? Why, why not scale another way? Why hurry up and do nothing but pray? Because, listen, all Christian mission is fundamentally an extension of the mission of Christ, in other words, we pray because Christian mission is not a human enterprise. It is not ours. This is not a human enterprise. This is a Holy Spirit, God-wrought movement from heaven to earth to those far from Christ. And so before we go out, we must go up. We must go up. This is not a human enterprise. This is a God enterprise. Yes, humans are involved, and indeed the aim is to see men and women come to know Christ, but this is not our doing. Christian mission is not our doing. Evangelism is the mission of Christ through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if we want, if we want to see a fruitful harvest in Costa Mesa, in Orange County, in Los Al, in Seal Beach, in Irvine, in Huntington Beach, if we want to see effective evangelism, prayer must not be the f only the first thing we do, but above every other effort we make, prayer must be at the center. It is indisposable. It is indispensable. If we neglect prayer, we neglect prayer true Christian mission. It becomes merely another human enterprise. And it may look good, and it may sparkle, and it may have a cool intro theme song to it, but it is not going to be effective. Prayer is essential. I am fully convinced, and I, I talked to, to Hans and Al about this to make sure that they're seeing the same thing I'm seeing. I am fully convinced that in all of the ways that we can grow and mature as a church, and there are many ways we can grow and mature as a church, this is priority one. We need, we must grow and mature in our individual prayer lives and in our corporate pleading with the Lord of the harvest. I'm busted by this text. I don't feel like this is for somebody else. I feel like this is for me. I feel like we have a pretty good grasp on the sovereignty of God over his harvest, right? We, we read that. The Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. We have a good grasp on the sovereignty of God. 
I think we believe, we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. We have a good grasp that God, God owns the harvest, that he will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, that the Lord has ordained all of these ends. I think we have a generally good grasp on this. And yet, do we believe that he has elected us, the church, to be the means to his sovereign ends? I think we're atrophying there. I think we're weak there. Yes, we believe that he is sovereign over all the ends, all the results. God does that, right? Amen? Yes and amen? Am I alone? God does that. But through the Gospels, through the New Testament, through the New Testament epistles, the church is the means to those ends. Sovereign ends, providential means. Yes, he is sovereign. He's the Lord of the harvest but pray that he would send laborers to the harvest. Oh, but this is just overwhelming. (laughs) This is just overwhelming. We'll talk about sort of practical things that we can do, but it always begins with prayer. And God drives the rest from the prayer meeting, from the prayer closet. He pushes us to neighbor and then nation for his glory. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. So what's Christ's missional strategy for reaching the world, for turning the world upside down? Humble prayer. Humble prayer. Strength through weakness. It's beautiful. It is Christ-like. This is Jesus. So the compassion of Christ compels the charge from Christ and now the chosen by Christ. Look at chapter 10, verses one through four. Here are the chosen by Christ. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. So this is the transition now. He is giving them excusia in the Greek, authority. The authority he had, he's giving now to the church over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12, verse two, of the names of the 12 apostles are first, are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, verse three, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, verse four, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this is the A-team. These are the Christian Avengers right here. They're going to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the A-team. This is the multi-talented, culture-shaping, industry-moving entrepreneurs. Wrong. These are fishermen. This is a zealot and a tax collector. And yet, we're sitting here because churches were planted, the gospel was preached, blood was shed through these kinds of unimpressive people. What qualifies a man and a woman to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? One thing. They've been impacted by the compassion of Christ. And they can't wait to share it with neighbor. 
Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 31. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Hear this beautiful rebuke. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human, be, human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <laughs> It is not as though Jesus didn't have a select group of people that were cultural influencers in the first century. The Roman Empire ruled the known world. The Roman roads were being carved out all over the, the world. He could have had governors. He could have had kings. He could have had queens. He could have had whoever he wanted to take the gospel out by sword to the ends of the earth. But that's not what compels this king. His kingdom has grown quietly through ordinary people consumed by the compassion of Christ, overwhelmed that their sins are actually forgiven, who actually believe that Jesus died and actually believe that he rose and actually believe that he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and they cannot wait to share it. Oh, and it comes out fumbly, <laughs> I, this is easier for me, preaching. Because you guys are just a glob of humans. You're just a bunch of faces. Some are asleep, some are awake. It is, I'm, I'm used to it. It is really challenging for me to do individual evangelism. I don't know wh why. It's so hard. It's so hard. What, like, to be rejected, to, to, to share Jesus. Can I share with you the most valuable thing I know. We're so, we're so reluctant to do that and we're so scared of rejection, aren't we? We're so scared that someone's gonna scowl. We're so afraid and so we put, we put media between us. We put mediums between us. We put a lot of things between us so that if we get rejected, it won't hurt as bad. If we're unfriended, it's not as bad as somebody over coffee saying, I don't wanna hear from you any, anymore. The only thing that qualified these men is the same thing that compelled them, the compassion of Christ. If you have felt the warmness of Jesus not scowling at you, have you ever felt the warmness of Christ not indifferent to your affliction or your pain? Have you ever sensed the realness and the nearness of Jesus saying, just collapse into my arms, I'm the good shepherd? Have you ever felt his embrace, his loving embrace when you've strayed and you need discipline and like a good father, he's come after you and carried you over his shoulder? If you've experienced that, that qualifies you for Christian mission. A seminary degree does not qualify you. In most of those seminaries degrees, they disqualify you, to be honest. 
The only thing that qualified these men and us is that they were recipients of the compassion of Jesus Christ. So practically, okay. According to our text this morning, this is where I'll end, Christian mission requires four main components. They're all there in the text. Four main components to Christian mission. In this text, there are more components to Christian mission. And Jesus will flesh that out in chapter 10 all the way to chapter 28 when he gives the Great Commission. But there are four in this text that we must not miss as we close if we are to be compelled by what is compelling Christ. Number one, we've labored in this, compassion for the lost. We must feel, I don't know where this war on empathy has come from. If you're not aware of this war on empathy, good for you. But there's this bizarre war on empathy, even within evangelical churches, that empathy is somehow wrong. Empathy is central to Christian ministry. It is central. If I lose that as a pastor, as your pastor, I lose empathy, I'm done. I hang up and I do something else. If we lose empathy in Christian ministry and mission, we don't have Christian mission. So that's number one. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The second is prayer. As we said, we must pray to the Lord of the harvest. I don't know how. I don't know how to sort through how God is sovereign and he causes us to pray. And when we pray, things happen. I have no clue how that happens. God is sovereign and he calls us to pray and he does stuff when we pray. <laughs> so we need to pray. And the fourth is proximity. And I think this is, this is where it hits the 21st century post-pandemic, post-COVID church right now in Orange County, in our little bubble. This is what hits you and me right now is proximity. We must go to the hurting. Physically go. We must be the embodiment of Christ. We will not have compassion in the biblical sense if we are from a distance engaging culture. If we are from a distance engaging our, our, our neighbor. A text message is a good start but a terrible end. We must proximate. We must go to the hurting and afflicted. We will not feel compassion if we don't. We will insulate ourselves. And I know why I do it and you do it too, because it's scary. How, how do I help them? I don't have all the money in the world to help them. How do I? I don't, that's one person. That's one person. That's one neighbor on my right and my left. But there are so many more and we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. And that's why prayer is essential. Jesus will work all that other stuff out. He'll work out the how-to. We must proximate. We have to come clear. There's no substitute for human embodiment of Jesus Christ in Christian mission. So we'll, we'll end now where we begin prayer, right? Prayer. The disciples have the same questions. Jesus, how, how are we going to do this? It's helpful that they're casting out demons and healing people. But the harvest is so big. It's so insurmountable. So we pray. Jesus often talked about loving your neighbor. And we always say, who's our neighbor, 
right? Who is our neighbor? That's just such a, it, everyone that isn't a Christian is your neighbor, everybody. What if we all, right here, all, whatever, how many of you are, we got to know our neighbor on our right and our neighbor on our left in the house, the condo, the apartment, right next to us. Just those two. And we learned their names. Some of, some of us don't even know their names. And we wrote them down in our Bible and we said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Joe. I'm going to pray for Jane on the right and on the left. And I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them. And then, and then I'm going to introduce myself. And then I'm going, to, I'm going to invite them over for a meal and just hear their story. Don't, don't, come, with, don't come with Jesus all ablazing. Come, come, come with a good meal. <laughs> That's very Christ-like. And we said, tell me your story. And we asked a question like, what matters most to you in life? And hopefully they'll reciprocate. <laughs> what matters most to you? Thank you for asking. <laughs> That's why I brought you here. And been praying for you, creeping out, praying for you for months and stalking you. What is your name? What is your story? What matters most to you? Maybe something will happen. But there you have an opportunity to share, share Jesus to just your neighbor. And when that happens, if you've experienced this, when you've gotten the opportunity to share Christ, don't you, aren't you just alive? You're just alive. You're like, purpose. I found my purpose. This is it. So, beloved, Compassion for the lost. It's all right here. Excuse me, we missed the first one. The gospel of the kingdom. All of this, compassion for the lost, prayer and proximity, apart from the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom is not Christian mission. So it's like, okay, am I going to have an agenda here? Yes. Yes. We have a kingdom agenda. What is it? forgiveness of sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we come with a gospel initiative. Whatever controls the king controls his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Jesus, for forming your church. It is a humble, it is a, it is a, a big responsibility to carry your gospel to the nations and to our neighbors. So give us the gospel. Give us a clear understanding of Christ for sinners. Lord, move us with compassion, the same compassion you've given us. Compel us to prayer. And Lord, help us to be risky in our proximity to those who are hurting. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.